Hello, I'm Keith Johnston, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executives' priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director James McQuivy and Vice President and Principal Analyst J.P. Gounder to discuss our 2022 future of work predictions. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. To say that it has been an exciting year for the Future of Work research team would be an understatement. Uh, The pandemic kicked in. uh, It created some new trends, uh, accelerated others that existed. But what's so interesting about this is that for the future of work, the term, it was just an idea for some. Now it's mainstream. Everybody seems to understand that the future of work is more than automation and AI. Um, And we also have some trends in just uh, our culture and society and what work means. So to set the tone here, guys, um, somebody first explain the future of work. And then let's just kick into some of the things that are actually making this real for everyone. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. This is James on the future of work picture. So I I just I'm an old guy now, I guess. So I can look back (laughs) in the past. I had. in grad school, I worked with a, a professor who talked all the time about telework. You know, telework was going to be the future. And this is the late 80s, early 90s that he was specializing in this. His name was Rolf Wiegand, outstanding researcher, way ahead of his time. And he had to wrestle with all of these issues. What technologies would be needed to make this happen? What what um, cultural changes would need to happen? He talked a lot about the flat organization as being one of the things that might occur in a telework society. Talked about commuting. I mean, honestly, I remember listening to him and reading his work and thinking, this is so interesting, but yeah, that's going to be decades away. And, and to be fair, it is decades away. But if you'd asked me even three years ago, future of work, I would have said, yeah, still a decade away. And now we're sitting in the middle of it, thanks to this awful pandemic. We are seeing all of the things that Rolf talked about in the 80s and 90s, but much more mature, much more realistic, even compared to what people talked about the future of work being when Yahoo and IBM talked about having a remote first workforce and and they didn't succeed. And so a lot of people say, yeah, that future is never coming. That future is here. The future of work is here. And that's why it's so fascinating that when we are asked to come up with predictions for 2022, we're we're predicting things in a 12 month time span that even three years ago, you would have said maybe not going to happen for five to 10 years from now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, JP, you've been studying this for a little while. Um, what it, Tell us your version of the future of work. Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing for people to know is that the future of work is triggered by a whole variety of shocks that we've written about. We we set this table early last year. We're still very confident that these shocks are impacting how we do it. They're just accelerating. And it is a world of more continuous change. So everything from systemic risk events like the pandemic to robots and automation, which are a part of this picture, to the downpour of data that we have around our employees and employee power, their ability to go on Glassdoor and give you a review, speak to people on social media. We continue to see these shocks in action. The pandemic, however, just created this uh, you know, huge acceleration of all of the trends around this. And it involves things from where you work to who is doing the work to how work gets done. And the intersection here is the answers are all pointing in the direction of more digital um, and equipping your work processes with more digital. 
I want to say we're analyst types, so maybe we over, well, not maybe, we overthink this, but we chose the word shocks that JP was talking about very deliberately because these are not things that, you know, you insulate yourself from, you hide from, you try to build walls to prevent. These are things that basically send energy through you and how you handle that energy. I mean, that was the very deliberate metaphor we were choosing when we used the word shock. That energy wave comes through you and how you handle it, how you absorb parts of it, how you redirect other parts of that energy. That's really what companies are facing right now. They're, they're facing how to uh, deal with things that they can't actually change, but have to respond to. Everything from how their employees are now waking up and saying, I don't want to go back to the office many in many, many cases. Um, that's that is a very real, tangible thing that CEOs across the globe are saying. So now what? Yeah. So one of those those uh, one of those forces, those shocks, the energy is really behind this idea of the great resignation. And it's it's a nice headline. Right. But, you know, as I mentioned, like the future of work really wasn't real for most until this pandemic struck us. So. Let's talk about the re the great resignation for a minute. What's interesting about that is the energy and the forces within that movement that are really real future of work concepts, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, so look, the the great resignation probably has a number of different causes here. It's not just a single thing, right? Uh, there's a psychological element where folks have reassessed their relationship to work and the experience they've had for almost two years in some cases has been quite different. There's burnout, which folks on our team have been looking at, like James and Dave and Katie, um, which is uh, sort of a you know undercurrent of crisis. By the way, there's also a pent up demand from last year still when folks weren't changing jobs because we were in the pre-vaccine uh, time of this crisis. You add on things like um, stimulus, government policy, inflation. Uh, and wanting to go to an employer who perhaps is a little bit more flexible and has learned some of these lessons, right, has internalized that the future of work needs to be reconstructed at their company. All of those things are contributing to higher churn in the workforce today. There's nothing there's nothing to stop anybody from improving their salary um, or getting a, a new creative opportunity or, or an opportunity to, to, to be part of a, a new startup that's innovating. But what's interesting now is that it's not just a few industries. It's across the board. It is happening across industries. We're seeing, you know, the, the statistics coming out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the United States. This is something they report on every month. Uh, what are quit rates is what they call it. And, and in our predictions, Doc, one of the things we said is, you know, the average quit rate is, is 1% uh, per month. Now, if you think about that and you compare it to your team, your job, your company, your industry, that number probably won't make sense because it varies tremendously by industry. It's one reason we weren't even sure we would bring it up in our report is that people will say, oh, well, our quit rate's much higher or much lower. And, and that's entirely possible. What you want to watch, though, is the relative quit, quit rate. Did your quit rate go up? Is it going up or is it going down or staying where it was before? Did, benchmark yourself against 2019, for example, and say, you know, what was our quit rate, quit rate then? And compare that to, to today and, and, then, and then watch that closely. So we're saying that there are a lot of industries and companies that are going to experience quit rates, sustained monthly quit rates, 
twice as high as they were before. So for the average, that means going from 1% to 2%. And there are people who will say, oh, well, that's not that bad. Okay, but it's huge. It's a doubling of the rate at which people are walking at your door. And we're seeing this now from uh, large companies that are reporting in their quarterly or annual reports who are reporting their attrition rates annualized are as high as 18, 20% annualized. And so that would be catastrophic for many, many companies, and in fact is. So the, the effect of all this is that you've got executives calling us now and saying, okay, you've been telling me future of work matters. And I've been saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now what do I do? How do I solve this right now, not in the future? So I think one thing to add to that picture that James laid out is that um, we've seen some really specific examples of dislocation. For example, lots of folks uh, either lost their jobs or were afraid to work in retail because of the COVID situation. We also found that um, you know many of those retailers uh, laid people off or closed down for periods of time. But the problem has been getting those folks to come back to that career path. And a lot of people have sort of shifted tracks and it's made um, them reassess, what would it take for me to go back to retail, for example? Uh, and so you see this as you know, uh, really hitting certain industries in a slightly different flavor of trauma than it did in others, particularly those with lots of frontline and essential workers who were very exposed to COVID throughout the crisis. So when we start these predictions, this is one great input, right? We cannot ignore the fact that the great resignation is happening. There's a tremendous amount of evidence. But when you guys start looking at how you're going to look at 2022, there's many more trends and inputs. What are some of the other big things that uh, the team started talking about before you got to the predictions? Well, I'll tell you the sausage making behind this, we had a list of 20 to 25 things that we could have written predictions about. And so we, as a team, we had to sit and discuss what are the things that can make an impact in the way people make decisions right now, because we're looking at a one year time frame. You know, how do you deal with what's going to happen right now? But behind it all, there are some things we left on the table that at least informed our thinking on how we articulated the predictions, but I still feel really sad that we're not able to make concrete predictions about. So I'll bring some of them up here. One of them is that the role of leadership, this has been one of the biggest problems in the future of work for as long as we've been studying it and everyone else has been going back to Rolf Wiegand, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, that you've got middle managers who are left holding the bag on a lot of this stuff. And that's what's happening uh, all throughout the pandemic. It's been happening. It's been happening now as companies are making their back to office policies. The executives get really comfortable with what they think needs to happen. And then they say, here's our policy. Okay, middle management, go make this happen. And middle management can see like on paragraph one of the policy, there are going to need, we're going to need to make exceptions here. There will be problems with this policy. I know people for whom this doesn't work or won't work or roles in the organization where it's just not going to apply. And some of those middle level people are coming to us, you know, vice presidents and below are saying, I don't know how I'm going to keep my team going in this environment. So if there was a prediction or, or a topic that is behind the scenes on all of our other predictions is that middle level managers are going to get squeezed to a degree that they uh, some of them are just going to fail through this. They're not being well supported. They're not being well taught. Um, and, you know, Katie Tynan on our team talks constantly about the piddling amount 
of money that people spend on leadership development. And, and sometimes it's, you know, offsites to learn how to be more this or more that as a person, but not even giving you just the specific characteristics, policies, processes, steps that you need in order to be successful. Who in my organization do I contact to get that exception for that member of my team? I don't know. And, and that just that level of support for middle leaders in the organization is going to, in my opinion, uh, determine whether or not people fulfill the dark predictions we've made or are able to avoid them and fulfill the positive predictions we've made. Yeah, so this is fascinating. So you're you're this is really at the heart of this year's predictions that the future of work is not really a future. It's now. And what we're looking at 2022 um, is probably some of the predictions that are really a second chance for leaders uh, because the pandemic happened and we, we had to get into the future of work really fast, but now we're going into a place where we're starting to make predictions of the way the future of work is course is going to be set from here on out. So let's get into it. You talked about, you know, the lack of budget in EX, you talked about the leadership struggling. Uh, What's, what's the first prediction that we made? Well, the, the first thing to point out is we talk about EX, employee experience at Forrester, as if everyone cares about it and believes in it and knows they need to do a good job with it. Only 48% of companies in the United States have an employee experience or EX program. And even the ones that they have, it's mostly just year-end you know, sentiment surveys and exit interviews. That's the number two thing that people ha- tell us in surveys from HR that they do as part of their EX is exit interviews. If that's the second most common thing that people are doing as part of employee experience, then is can we really call that employee experience? I'm not sure we should. So what we're saying and what we're hearing as these executives I mentioned are coming to us and saying, what do we do now? We're saying, well, if you don't have EX, you got to spin it up. And we've got great you know, research and suggestions uh, led by Dave Broder Johnson on our team who tells you how to do that. So good. But that is going to take money. Uh, and it means budgets are going to have to go up. And one of the issues that's going to happen here is where does that budget sit? Is it an HR budget? We think by and large, that's where people are going to default. Is they'll say, okay, this is now going to be a big function of HR. So HR, it, if you don't see this coming already, or if you haven't been advocating for it, which hopefully you have been, now's your chance. Now's your chance to step up and say, I am a strategic part of the organization, not just a driver of compliance. But that implies a big culture change inside of HR as well. So so everybody's got to change to make this work. Yeah, we could we could spend a lot of time of who owns uh, employee experience within the organization. I know you guys debate this all the time, but um, I'm interested. JP, where's the money actually going to go when we do get more investment in employee experience? You know, it's going to go to a couple of things. One of them is going to be recognition programs, uh, which are typically only about 1% of the budget today or less at most companies. And that could move up to as high as 2%. We know, again, from David Broder Johnson's research that um, recognition, feeling seen, feeling valued, this is a huge psychological So we're not just talking about money or, you know, bonuses or anything. It's something different, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, there are certain table stakes. You need to be on top of your compensation strategy. You need to be thinking about uh, benefits and things like that. But this is about generating uh, an experience holistically for every employee that makes them say, I want to do this work. I, I feel engaged and motivated. 
uh, and feeling recognized for good work, being given training and uh, you know additional resources to help that person, and in some cases also uh, you know investing in technology. Right, uh, technology plays a role in our success because the number one driver of our engagement is can I make progress toward my daily goals at work? You know, every day. Uh, so all of those things matter. So you can put programs in place for this stuff, but, you know, there's a lot of onus on their leaders to anticipate the needs of employees at this point. Right. You just can't set it and forget it. Like you got to be ahead of this stuff. Right. Particularly to stop the great resignation from happening in your company. Well, and that's why you're going to have to have as a core part of your employee experience effort. It's going to have to be about measurement. Uh, and this is such a fascinating topic because. Uh, a lot of companies jumped in with pulse surveys throughout the pandemic, and that was wise and that was good. And, and now they're saying to us, well, I can't survey our employees because our participation rate is going down. People are fatigued by the survey. And, uh, you know, we're talking we're right in Dave Broder Johnson's wheelhouse here. So I'll just quote him again. Uh, he recently said this to a client. I thought this was genius. He said uh, the client expressed this concern. We, we can't survey people to death. Um, and he said, people are not experiencing survey fatigue. They're experiencing lack of action or inactivity fatigue, <laughs> meaning that they're telling you what's wrong and what they need to be successful. And you're not doing anything about it. You might not even be saying, here's what we heard. Uh, the, the transparency and empathy that, uh, that leaders have when they turn around and say, here's what we heard in our survey and here's what we're going to do about it. That courage, that takes courage as leaders to do that. A lot of organizations aren't doing it. They're just saying, thank you so much for the input. Isn't this a great place to work? So, yeah, of course, next time you turn around and say, we need your input, they're not going to take that survey. So uh, so that that probably is is the direct driver for one of your predictions, which you said one third of companies will fail at anywhere work and it won't be the virus's fault. Uh, you mentioned measurement. What else is there? Why is one third of all the companies going to fail? Well, they're going to fail because they are thinking about um, anywhere work without making any changes in how they design their meetings, design their job roles, uh, figure out how to make experiences work. So, look, doing hybrid is harder than doing full time remote where everybody's on a flat playing field. Everybody's you know, working from home. And it's harder than what we had in 2019 before the crisis. In 2019, it was perfectly acceptable for someone to be sort of a, a fifth, third wheel, if you will, a second class citizen, if they weren't in the room with you. This return to office, this hybrid work is going to be a style that's very dynamic. You're going to have people congregating in offices. You're going to have people, however, who are always remote as well. Uh, and it will be a cyclical thing. You may be in the office today, tomorrow you'll be the remote person. But the problem is if you just revert back to everything that happened in 2019 without changing your approach, uh, you're gonna fail, right? You're not gonna have a great experience and then you're probably gonna blame it on the fact that hybrid you know, was the problem. When the problem was you didn't put in place the norms of behavior, the culture and the technology to make sure that everyone felt like they were an equal and engaged participant in all of these interactions. Yeah, JP's being modest here, but he and Dave just recently wrote a report about how to make hybrid work. Um, and we have more research that JP's leading on some of these questions because the, the worst possible scenario is that the executive team gets dragged kicking and screaming into some kind of hybrid 
configuration and then turns around, you know, six, nine, 12 months from now and says, oh, I told you it wasn't going to work. People are complaining about this or that or that. And the answer might be, well, you just did you did it wrong. Um, the answer is also, by the way, hybrid is hard, um, but that's that was already known, we, we believe. So we're trying to make sure companies understand that uh, failing at anywhere work doesn't mean anywhere work failed you. You may have failed it, uh, but that's another reason why you have to be talking to your employees, getting their input. What is working? What isn't? Are you being resourced? And are you are we giving you the right tools? When we say things like, uh, hey, we need to be in the office to brainstorm, but half of the people that you've hired during the pandemic don't even work close to the office anymore. What are you saying to them about their ability to contribute to your brainstorm at the end of the year? Th- those uh, unintentional statements that we hear all all the time where it's, oh, well, we have to get together to do X, but you've already configured your teams in such a way that you can't get together to reliably do X. So how do you say, what tools do we need to substitute for the way we used to do things to augment? Uh, Many of those tools, I mean, everyone says, we've got Teams, we've got WebEx, we've got Zoom, we're covered. But all we're doing is replicating the experience of sitting around a table together and not super well at that. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And I uh, personally, this is going back to, you know, a lot of our customer experience work over the years here at Forrester. We've told CEOs, go try to buy your own product, try to book your own flight, try to reserve hotels, stays in your hotel. These are things that CEOs don't do. We're telling CEOs, you know, go try to uh, do an expense report. Go try to do uh, to set up a meeting to establish a a, a a virtual whiteboard. Try these things yourself. And when you find that you can't do them well, say, all right, how do we empathetically support our employees to overcome this obstacle that I finally discovered? That's great advice, because, you know, to be clear, we are not saying in our research or giving advice that you just flip a switch and you can do anywhere work. Right. Um, it's a it's a choice. And uh, even our own company, look at Forrester, we decided to, to be the anywhere work, you know, best anywhere work, you know, firm we could be. But we had to do some things, right? I mean, because you're looking at employees, and there's a level of personal accountability, there's a culture that has to be in place. Uh, it's not right for anybody, everybody. Yeah, I mean, our, our forecast, just so we're clear, is that only 10% of companies will choose fully remote. 30% of choose com- of companies will choose mostly back to the office. And that the big bulk in the middle, 60%, will choose some kind of hybrid solution. And hybrid can mean uh, anything from you know two days at home a week to four days at home a week. So there's a lot of variety in there. Interestingly, uh, and this is something we actually haven't published yet. Uh, I'll just sneak it out to this group here. Uh, we have done a survey recently about 700 Uh, HR leaders, and we've asked them what direction they see their company leaning. And it's not breaking out the way we forecast, but it is more interesting, meaning we've got about 15% of companies saying they're thinking of going fully remote. Now, they haven't baked the plan yet, so who knows where that will land. But we thought 10% might be a stretch, and we're already hearing that it's going to be bigger than that. And I think it's partly because people are terrified by this hybrid remote, uh, this hybrid work stuff that they know is going to be hard. They're hearing that it's hard, and they're thinking, you know, let's just stay remote and avoid that. Now, I'm not sure that's the right decision either, because doing that because you're afraid to tackle the complexity of hybrid, um, it, does that show that your organization is culturally ready to be vibrant and uh, and really look for the solutions that are right for the future? Or does it say that, oh, you know, this is our new normal just because we're told it's our new normal and we're going to keep doing it? 
And of course, many companies don't have that option anyway, because they have a lot of frontline workers who never necessarily worked from home throughout the entirety of this crisis, often at personal risk. Um, I think that, you know, conversations we're having, as James suggests, are very much across a spectrum of different kinds of situations. There's no one size fits all. But what we are learning is that there are things that you can do to try to maximize your success with, say, hybrid. For example, we tend to have, um, during the pandemic period, a lot of meeting creep because people wanted to feel connected. So they scheduled lots and lots of meetings and people are kind of burned out from too many meetings. So uh, having, setting a high bar for those meetings, understanding exactly when a meeting is necessary, moving some of your collaboration to more asynchronous tools like Slack or Teams. Uh, and when you're actually having these meetings partly in the office, partly remote, the person who called that meeting and is running that meeting has a responsibility to make sure that the people who are remote are not falling into second-class citizen. If you have a, a camera that is poised right on that whiteboard, go ahead and use it or use a digital whiteboard. If you don't, let's try to keep this meeting in a, a scenario where everyone can participate effectively. That's really simple advice. It's also very uncommon and very hard to do. So guys, I want to take a step back on one of the predictions you made. Uh, one of the challenges with with all the changes in the dynamic around work um, is as simple as how do you compensate your employees, which it turns out is not all that simple, right? Um, in your predictions, you said that 100% of companies will get compensation wrong. Uh, tell me about that one. That was one of my favorite predictions because as we were trying to put a number on that one, we said, look, Everybody we're talking to is telling us they are already getting it wrong. So uh, we might as well start from that assumption that you're going to get it wrong and then figure out how to heal it from there. Uh, and it's because it's happening essentially everywhere. It's not just things like, oh, no, uh, so-and-so can work from their basement and work for Facebook in another state or country, which is true. And so we've got to figure out how to compensate that person or that person who used to live in our expensive uh, locale next to headquarters has moved to Montana so we could maybe pay them less. I mean, those are early things that we were writing about. JP has a couple of pieces he's written about those kinds of compensation questions. But those apply to a really small percent of the people that we're really talking about. There's also inflation that's happening, and we don't know where it's going to land. Of course, that's the nature of inflation. And it's happening, as JP already mentioned, in a context of, well, how do I get rewarded and recognized? And what's the role of finances in that question in a world of inflation? So we're essentially saying to companies by throwing out the 100% number is you are going to make some mistakes along the way. One of the ways to solve that is to be as flexible as possible. It's a little bit like a diversified investment portfolio. Invest in a lot of different ways to provide people recognition and remuneration so that throughout the year you can figure out where some of those things might settle. And if you accidentally over-recognize for a little bit, that's not a terrible thing either, especially coming out of the complexity of the pandemic. So, you know, it's a humbling thing to recognize you're probably already making some mistakes here and you'll probably get that feedback in your end of year. If you're only doing an annual, you know, employee sentiment survey, you, you probably already got that feedback. So look at it. It doesn't mean everybody's perceptions are correct because, of course, people are hearing about grasping very, very green um, on the other side over there. 
uh, from friends or in the media. Um, so just because people have feedback doesn't mean you immediately have to adjust compensation either. But be listening carefully and be ready to have as many possible ways to help people feel like they're going to be recognized and remunerated for their work. Yeah, I would say that the location-based uh, thing is mostly a high-end knowledge worker problem. Um, inflation affects everyone. And in fact, at the uh, lower end of the wage scale, there's a lot of movement as well. Companies are trying to determine, can they meet or exceed $15 an hour, which uh, is only an official minimum wage in a couple of places in the United States. Nevertheless, the talent shortage is not just I can't hire a data scientist. It's I can't hire retail. I can't hire someone to be a barista, you know, in a coffee shop. And so um, wages are actually turning out to be a very big issue on that end of the scale with a lot of employee power, um, very vigorous conversations on places like Reddit uh, about the nature of work and how you should be compensated. It really does, JP, span all of these different, uh, from the high end to what you might call a low end. I mean, we're having Bank of America say their minimum, their their floor wage is going to be $20 an hour, regardless of what kind of role that they have. We're seeing you know, companies like Amazon, of course, easy to criticize on some of these fronts, saying, oh, day one benefits and full benefits, and those benefits include things that other companies don't give their employees. Uh, and we're going to do, you know, tuition reimbursement and all the way through four years uh, of a degree um, along the way. So, you know, we'll we'll see how many of these things catch on and how widespread they become. But the fact is this combination of people knowing they got compensation wrong or are likely to is leading to some really interesting innovation in uh, and across companies. And I think that's good. Uh, now, your company may not be the first one to innovate, but you can at least look around and see what these other companies are doing and decide what are you going to recommend in 2022 so that in 2023 you are not failing at compensation. So tons of companies have pivoted. They've had to deploy more automation, uh, just you know, different ways of working for sure. But... Uh, many companies are they're still struggling. It's like they can't find enough employees. So some of these experiments that happened throughout the pandemic um, might become priorities in 2022. So uh, that brings us to your last prediction. James, what was that last prediction that you had for 2022 for the future of work? So our final prediction is that sometime in 2022, a Fortune 1000 company will boldly announce its automation first workforce strategy. And I'm really glad that we have JP with us here because this is really uh, his area of expertise. And uh, JP, define for us what this automation first workforce strategy is supposed to mean. Because I, I, I'm worried that people will say, oh, sure, they're gonna use automation, I get it. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit more subtle than that. The, the, the talent gap here means that people are having trouble filling uh, roles that they need to. So we know that automation can free people up to do other important things, right? So some of it will be along that uh, axis. Some of it will be, we're building better systems to be pro-employee experience by taking things off of your plate that you frankly don't want to do, that are repetitive, that are predictable, giving you a, a leg up and sort of automating um, the tasks that you know make you more effective. So if this is done right, it actually can address a whole bunch of problems from making the human employees more effective 
to obviating the need to go out and find more people at a time when it is very, very hard to, in fact, hire. And finally, the people who are there are going to be able to learn new skills because they're learning how to work side by side with these intelligent systems that are automating parts of their job. Now, that's not to say it's always this sort of utopia, right? But in in when you do it right, our view is there's going to be this sort of Fortune 1000 company who says, you know, we're at the point where we're starting to understand the, the, the applicability and parameters of automation. We know how to do this. We know there's a talent uh, gap and it's very hard to hire. So we're just going to put it out there as a statement. Rather than trying to hire, 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 we're going to invest, invest, invest in human technology equivalents, to use a term that we are using here at Forrester, which is filling in those gaps rather than relying on human talent alone. It's kind of an ideal solution in that it addresses a lot of what we've been talking about, which is why we put this prediction at the end as a as a summary kind of prediction in that, you know, we're seeing employee experience struggle. We're seeing executives say, what do I do next? All of the things we've been talking about. And in many, many cases, the answer is you will help your people and you will help your company improve through automation if you do the right investments, the right time in the right way. And if you're a company that has already learned some of these things, you have a huge advantage now going into 2022. And that's where we're thinking a bold company could step forward and say, by the way, we're really good at this now because we've been doing it off and on for 10 years. And we now realize it's not only necessary, but valuable. It adds value to the day-to-day workings of our employees' uh, lives and how they contribute to to the workforce. So we, we think this is an important one. Um, I will just say, though, this is happening in a context in which there are countries that are already seeing their labor pool shrink and perhaps not generate the kinds of, of people uh, in the labor force that you might need anyway. And so you almost have to do this. I, JP, I want to throw it back to you because this is a part of a report you recently worked on where we're seeing this dynamic in Europe. Yeah, our forecast uh, partner, Michael O'Grady, did a great new forecast, should be published very soon, of the European labor market. And of course, Europe is in fact uh, shrinking demographically. There will be too many retirees. The truth is European companies have a very big um, opportunity, but also an obligation to really fill that gap by using automation investments. Guys, these were some great predictions. What you're predicting for 2022 is asking a whole lot of firms. How will executives, how will the CEOs out there listen to this podcast, how will they know what's working and what isn't coming out of 2022? I would start by making sure you're listening to your employees, your partners, your your extended workforce, which is not only the people that you pay and employ, but contract workers, uh, partners in your supply chain. Listen and look for evidence that things are either um, improving or at least at a minimum staying the same in the face of significant obstacles. So what, did that, what that impl- implies is a much better approach to internal data utilization. Because I can say listening, and that might mean doing the surveys we talked about earlier, and it does, but it also means just essentially having clarity, day-to-day clarity on where are the flows of our uh, intellectual property, of our people, of our workforce, what are those flows and how could we remove obstacles to making those flows be more effective and more efficient. So there is a very, we haven't really even mentioned it here, but there is a very large employee data analytics, workforce analytics component 
to how the future is going to unfold. And, and JP mentioned in the very, very beginning, because that's one of the shocks that we are saying is going to shape the future of work. But the question is, it will shape you or can you shape it? Can you use that data in a more intelligent way so that you're making these kinds of decisions and able to see the effect of your decisions in as close to real time as possible so that you can tweak and adjust and, and show the organization that you are still as creative now as coming out of the pandemic, people started to believe their organizations were. And that's the last point I'll leave with you, which is that in our surveys, we, we did surveys, but right before the pandemic, the middle of the pandemic, and then we just got another survey out of the field. We were in six countries. We'll be publishing that data. Uh, thousands of people that we surveyed in the workforces of the United States, the UK, France, Germany, India, Australia. I probably missed one. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating what we're seeing. Yes, people are beleaguered. People are tired. And they're experiencing burnout, which... Uh, uh, Jonathan Roberts on our team has been writing exquisite pieces about that are going to be published in a few weeks. Um, but at the same time, their perception of the organization's flexibility, innovation capacity, and creativity has actually gone up. And believe me, we scoured the data like crazy to see whether or not that could be true or an artifact of some methodological decision we made. It appears to be solid. It's true. People now are looking at their organization and saying, yes, I'm tired, but we responded creatively. We seem to be better at innovation than we were. We're collaborating uh, more regularly than we were before. This is your moment, executives. You've got people who believe you are more capable of all of this adaptive stuff we've been telling you you need to do than they've ever been. So it's really an opportunity for you to honor what they believe about you and go make it happen. Fantastic stuff, guys. I appreciate it. Please keep the research coming. Sounds like we need more of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.